This is the coolest show brought to you by Hip Hop Caucuses. Think 100%. It's the coolest show you know. Keep the culture connected. It's the coolest show you know. In your ear, yeah, respect the expert level information, entertainment, education. Rev here, we got you covered as you hit your destination. Climate rules everything around me. Cream. For those who lost focus, close your eyes and just dream. Open your third eye, now the world is your off. Coolest, coolest show you know. It's the Hip Hop Caucus. Well, I'm so excited to be here. Uh, I'm sitting here with the Honorable Shalanda Baker from the Department of Energy. Shalanda, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Rev. Really great to see you again. It is always so good to see you. Yeah. Um, before we even get to the conversation, I just want to welcome everybody to, you may be noticing if you're watching this or you're hearing this. If you're watching this, you're probably seeing this beautiful studio that we're in here in D.C., and I'm sitting, we're sitting in the studio, which is amazing, <laughs> and Shalana has been on the show before. I have. But this is, because she's one of our, like, all-time favorite guests, <laughs> she's the first one to be in the studio. Amazing. So, it's such an honor. I, I can't even believe it, so it's really great to be here. Well, thank you. Well, we're, we're, I think we're going to name this from what our producers are, Destiny Cross Tomorrow. So I'm not sure how we're going to Make that a studio name, but we got to <laughs> figure that into it. You got to figure. Okay. Cross Destiny. T- I don't know. We'll, 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 we'll see how that could work. You know, CDT. I don't know. We're the CDT <laughs> studio. We'll, we'll make that. We'll make that happen. Before we get to anything else, I, I got to ask you. I know that you've lived and you're from Hawaii. Yeah. And right now, as we're having this conversation, um, that community has gone through some of the most horrific. Wildfires. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, my heart goes out to the people of Hawaii in the archipelago. Um, I spent some time in Honolulu as a law mm-hmm. professor and launched really my career, my current thinking around energy justice. And so I'm indebted to that place for mm-hmm. sure. And we were recently there um, in June, I think. Time is weird. I think June or early July. Yeah. Actually, it was early July. And we got to go to Molokai, which is a neighboring island to Maui. Oh. And people talk about Molokai because it's um, one of the most native Hawaiian islands in the whole you know, archipelago. Mm-hmm. Around 75% or higher um, native Hawaiian population. Yep. Um, energy is a challenge there. And so when the fires struck um, in Maui, you know, of course, I could not tear myself away from any of the news coming out of the of the area, and the energy question popped yeah. up, right? And immediately, the question was, why was power still running through those lines mm. when there was such a high wind? You know, when the high winds were happening due to the hurricane, um, and then of course the warning system. I mean, there's so many issues that yeah. that arose, but for me, um, it's devastating. I mean, it's devastating. I know the the Hawaiian people are resilient, and I, I hate that term because it, it implies that people are always having to bounce back, yeah. you know, into a system that is not necessarily supportive of, of them. But I know that the spirit of Hawaii is so deep, and there's such a connection to the land. There's such a connection to the ocean, to every part of the islands. And when people, um, when Native Hawaiians talk about the fish, they talk about their ancestors because mm. like, these are my ancestors. I'm a part of this. And so the the disaster in Maui really was a result of how that island landscape has changed mm. and how the stewardship 
a protection of the land as ancestors, right? As something that is going to take care of you went away. Mm. And so, you know, non-native grasses being planted that really allow that fire to just sweep through and, you know, burn that community into the ground. Um, all of that connects to our lack of harmony with the planet and lack of harmony with the earth. So for me, it's, it's a wake-up call. It's, um, it's yet another wake-up call. I mean, I feel like we're getting wake-up calls over and over again. We can talk about Florida, you yeah. know, what's happening this summer. But um, it's a wake-up call regarding the lack of sustainability and the lack of connection that we have with the planet and how we're using these resources that have been given to us uh, to steward and to shepherd. So um, Hawaii will be, will be okay, but this is devastating. For me, I mean, in 2023, right, to, yeah. to, to have one of the most devastating fires in American history happen today with all of our modern technology yeah. and to know that the root cause is really about sustainability. And how we how we are relating to the earth. I mean, if we don't wake up now, I don't know when we will. So yeah. speak to them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you hit on so many different things. Mm-hmm. One of the things that is clear and is the injustice. Yeah. The images. Mm-hmm. There were images of people who were standing in the ocean yeah. as their homes burned down. There was the images of particularly um, the beautiful Hawaiian people who, people of color in many cases, who obviously have a long, as you mentioned, they have a very indigenous, very different viewpoint. And maybe those even around this country may understand how they're connected to the land. What's next, though? Because you're now in DOE, Department of Energy. A lot of things happen. We'll, we'll, we'll get a little bit. We need to mention, you know, you're an awesome author as well. So you mentioned a lot of these things, almost prophetic, in your book. And then you're seeing it play out. Yeah. What do you tell the people? I mean, yeah, they'll come back. Yeah, they're resilient. But yeah, they're also responding to something that they didn't start. So this is the story. I mean, yeah. this is the story of climate injustice. Yeah. This is the story of how people who played a very small part in the overall climate disaster are going to be suffering the most. So we'll see this, right? And we'll see it play out again and again until we get on the right course. And we also need to create the systems that are going to be in place as this happens because we're not going to stop much of the temperature rise, you know, we're trying to do our best to do that, but the temperature is still rising. And so there will be disasters. We're not quite at the tipping point yet based on the science, but if we continue, we'll obviously hit the tipping point and these types of disasters will become more commonplace. So um, when I think about how things played out in Hawaii and the rebuild, I think about an opportunity to really rethink our energy system. So the, the thing about, Hawaii um, is that it's so self-contained, right? These are islands. I mean, yeah. people see it as paradise. People go there. And when you're on the islands and, and you're sort of stuck there when there's a disaster like the one that happened, you realize just how self-contained it is, right? And so um, I think there's an opportunity to think about um, well, different, you know, alarm systems. I mean, obviously that system failed mm-hmm. um, the people there. But 
microgrids, um, you know, ways of disconnecting parts of the grid so that different communities can be isolated and islanded still with electricity and energy. But, you know, the problem is isolated away. Um, you know, more distributed energy, obviously, to make sure people have that sort of backup power and security. These are things that I've been talking about for a while. Um, and I've seen it play out in, in California, even, where mm-hmm. because of the way the grid is managed and operated, um, you can have a, a problem far away. Um, and then in, in a more urban center, the folks are losing power because yep. of that problem that's far away. So how are we rethinking the way the energy system is designed in this moment of a climate emergency, in this moment of climate disaster. So I feel like everything should be on the table. Um, We've been doing a lot of work in Puerto Rico over the last year and a half or so. Mm -hmm. Um, When you say we, that's... The Department of Energy. Mm -hmm. Department of Energy. And Puerto Rico, for me, is also a place I love in in so many ways. It reminds me... You like nice places. I do. You know, I have good things. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm not going to go... Anyway... Um, (laughs) No, but so, you know, Puerto Rico reminds me a lot of Hawaii um, in terms it does. of the spirit, it does. Yeah. the vibe, but yeah. also Hurricane Maria really yeah. brought into question the design of the energy system and mm. what is needed. And so we know we need more distributed power um, in homes on the island so that when there is a disaster, folks can still have access to life-saving energy. And when I'm talking about folks, I'm talking about people that rely on dialysis, people that Mm -hmm. rely on medications that need to be refrigerated. You know, the basics that we lose sight of, Mm. um, you know, on a day-to-day basis. So you mentioned the we, and so let's let's get to to that. Thank you for your response to that, though. Okay. And I hope that folks either throughout this country and definitely back in Hawaii here that and just know that there are folks who are real. And let's get to that. So right. give folks, because you're an author, you're in part of energy. What is your, because I, I am folks, now this is honorable. <laughs> give them your official title at the mm-hmm. DOV. Sure. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, I'm the director of the Office of Economic Impact and Diversity. I'm also the secretarial advisor on equity. And the, the second title that I have is a new one um, that the Secretary of Energy bestowed upon me when she joined the administration back in 2021. Hmm. And they, they kind of wand thing going on there yep. with a little bit. It was right there. <laughs> there you are. My so, advisor. There, no, no, that's it. <laughs> so we're going to get into that. We got some questions since you were here last. Okay. okay. For the people, because you are the people's uh, uh, guest here. I want to get to that. Why I get to that? Let's get to this drip right here. Though. Let me just do this. Let's make sure folks... This, the, the socks. Yeah, I, I guess let's see oh, the socks. I'm repping Hawaii today. Yeah, I he's what? in Hawaii. Come on now. Wow. Yeah, guess, yeah. You know, I had a Film. spiritual connection. I was like, let me, let me rock Get my the socks. I see the Hawaii socks. Converse, like that. You know, I didn't know we were going to be on camera, so I wasn't uh, even, this is all like unplanned. Come on now. <laughs> come on now. <laughs> that, that we got this. We, she didn't know. Wink. He didn't, y'all see the wink, wink there. It's just my day to day. No, okay. We got the, we got the, was that, what, what color pants are those? That, I'd say coral. Did you say coral? I like, I, yeah. okay. All so, right. Uh, I was going to say island. salmon. Okay, salmon. I coral. Can, I like coral. Coral is more orange, right? Yeah. So like that. yeah. All right. Salmon. And, and then the shirt and the glasses. I'm feeling that. You know, I like the glasses. So, glasses are there. And the shirt. I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it. You got to be. So, listen, we're going to have many folks on from the administration. They're going to be tough. <laughs> to follow this right here. They're going to come in with these suits on. I like to say Men's warehouse and other stuff. They need to go down there 
and, and hang here <laughs> with the honorable Shalanda Baker. That's what I'm. That's what I'm talking about. Actually, let me hit you with some. Hit you with the hard one first. Okay. You ready? Yes. So this came from the people here, right? Okay. So they have questions and things. So off the top, mm. somebody mentioned that many people are rightly excited about the potential for green hydrogen in a clean energy economy. Mm-hmm. However, without the proper standards around what counts as truly, quote-unquote, green hydrogen projects, mm-hmm. we risk extending a lifeline to propose chemical plants that could retool or to locking in other new fossil fuel infrastructure. Yeah. How are you considering the criteria? Yeah. So what I've learned in the administration is I have limited tools in my toolkit, but I have a lot of conversations with people across the administration. So I want to talk about kind of what we have in our toolkit. And then also I want to issue a provocation to the community as well in my response. So first, um, I 100% agree that we need a strong regulatory framework for hydrogen. We need a strong regulatory framework for um, carbon dioxide pipelines. I mean, anything that um, is new, is cutting edge technology, we have to figure out the regulatory framework. Mm. So that is congressional. There is, I think, an executive branch part of that, which would be at at EPA, Mm. you know, trying to make sure we have the right standards, which which body of existing law can we fit some of these technologies into? Mm-hmm. Would it be clean air? Would it be clean water? Like which, which existing statutory frameworks can those things fit into? Mm. I don't actually think we have a proper framework for, you know, to capture all of these new technologies that are coming through. There are some regulatory frameworks that we are looking at and that we're thinking about, particularly in the carbon dioxide pipeline context in the injection of um, carbon dioxide into the earth again, there are some existing frameworks, but I do think we need a fresh look at a lot of the regulatory frameworks that govern this work. And we are running as fast as we can at the Department of Energy mm-hmm. on the technology side. So this is where, for me, we do need a balance. So we need EPA, we need the Congress to take a look. We also, I think, need academics to help us um, to arm us with, you know, the types of questions that we should be asking as these technologies are being rolled out. So, as you know, I'm a lawyer by training. Yeah, no, so, uh, you got a couple of degrees, actually. Yes. Uh, you're not a lawyer by training. You're <laughs> super smart here. Ah, but I think about these regulatory gaps, too, right? I think about... But that's thing, though, right? Yeah. Because so then your friends mm-hmm. or just your folks who are working in the field, for some reason, feel that there is a breakdown. Yeah. Right. Yep. And they're asking, obviously, for for the secretary and for you and others in mm-hmm. in DOE yep. to at least to hear that out and to heed that precaution. Mm-hmm. So, yep. I guess what you're saying here is that that's y'all are definitely mindful. They're mindful, and if folks could be a fly on the wall in so many of the conversations I'm in, I'm asking some of the same questions, right? And that is my job yeah. to ask those questions. I think there's, so this is my provocation. Um, so I mentioned congressional action, action to mm-hmm. help us create some guardrails around these technologies. That's one pathway. We also have the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council, EJAC, mm-hmm. right? Historic. We have an advisory council 
focused on environmental justice at the White House level, that body needs to be utilized to be asking some of these questions to make sure they make it to the White House level. And the White House actually can help guide a lot of these conversations that need to happen. Now, now you know, a lot of folks on that on, on the WE Deck are the ones ringing the alarm. Yes. They're the one hitting the bell. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I definitely hear you. Um, let's get to the last time you were on the show. Okay. Um, and you spoke to us from your expertise in energy justice. Let's kind of just break it down for folks. Because obviously this show, we kind of went, went off the deep end off the beginning. <laughs> and let's go back to the, the shallow end just a little bit. Um, but so for those who are unfamiliar, can you just break down the extent of the energy crisis that we're in? Kind of did that in your, with some of Hawaii. But I think just overall that what that means in regards to energy justice and climate justice. Yeah. Wow. It is such a big question. Yeah. When you talk about the crisis, the energy crisis that we're in, I want to talk about people. Yes. People in Phoenix, people in Texas right now. I read an article last night. I, I, in Phoenix, on. you're saying like heat waves and just I'm talking about this droughts, drought, everything, the heat in particular. And we know we're going to get into well, it, yeah, well, you mean that's that, that's a triggering, right? Mm. Because people, thinking from our community, are cooking. Yeah. They have died, right? This yes. is cut it. Yes. Right? So we know about the mothers and grandmothers who mm. literally cooked to death mm. in their homes. So I want to make sure people understand what we're talking about. Yes. And that's what I, I like to make sure people know. Yeah. We're talking about people on fixed incomes yeah. who are facing exorbitant prices, right, for energy just to keep the heat at a, or keep the air at a 80 degree mark, which is also unsafe in the home, right? Mm-hmm. I talked to my mom who's on social security, right? And I'm like, mom, I'm always checking in. Where's the temperature? Where are you, you know, how are you doing this? She's like, well, I don't go outside. And she just stays real still. I'm like, well, that's no way to live. No. So we know in this country, before any of the stuff that happened this summer, before it even happened, one in three Americans is facing energy insecurity. So that's making difficult choices about whether to heat or cool your home or eat. So I grew up in a household like that. It was every, every month we're trying to figure out, okay, how are we going to pay these bills? So without any of the climate stuff that's happening this summer, one in three Americans was experiencing that. When you break that down and look at the data, which we have, we know that over half of Black Americans, 52.2% of Black households are experiencing energy insecurity. And that's the situation that you and I talked about. 40% um, or so of, of Latinx folks. So, mm-hmm. This is a crisis. It's hidden and it's falling disproportionately on people of color. That's just the cost of energy. Mm. Then we move to how people are living and breathing in their communities. So a lot of us in D.C. got an experience of air pollution this summer. Candy wildfires and one of the things. Right. People wearing masks. We have communities in this country on a regular basis that are experiencing high levels of particulate matter that cause asthma. Um, Illegal and impermissible uh, toxins being spewed out of facilities in their communities without their knowledge, right? They're not being monitored, et cetera. So this is the environmental justice problem that you grapple with every day that you talk about on your show with with different guests. So that's a result of the energy system. So the design of the energy system has created a problem that relates to cost. The design of the energy system has created a health issue that is concentrated in low-income communities and communities of color. This is energy injustice. Mm -hmm. We also know that this energy transition is happening. So, and I would love to talk about that transition and what it. Well, let's. What let's, I think. No, no, we need. Let's 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 get get it. <laughs> let's do it. Yeah. But so, um, 
with the energy transition that's happening, we know that folks have been adopting rooftop solar to drive down the cost of energy. Mm-hmm. And so we now have um, the people who were early adopters, middle-income folks, mainly mm-hmm. white. I mean, the data is telling us that. Yeah. That have been able to adopt solar. And now that the cost of solar has lowered, we have the regulatory system now responding and the utility sector responding and saying, whoa, 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 if all these people are adopting solar now, it's going to mean that there's no one here to maintain all this other infrastructure that we've created. And so they're trying to figure out a new cost structure for solar. So these new adopters are not going to get the same advantages that the first adopters got. That's injustice as well. So, and, and we know, as you mentioned at the outset, fires and floods and all those things that are happening that cut people off from the energy system Meanwhile, they've got these health elements like diabetes and other things that require them to have energy and electricity in their home. So this is the big picture of energy injustice, and it also connects to the climate emergency that we're in. And that relates to climate injustice because those most vulnerable communities are the ones that did very little to create the problem. They use less energy because they pay so much for it. Mm -hmm. They have lower energy intensity in their homes. But yet all of the system that has been created um, is harming them. Essentially. So, I want to ask this though, yep. because you that you articulated that very well, mm. and it's clear. And I hope that people put that on repeat mm. when they're listening to this. Where we're listening to it, rewind that and listen to it again, and then share it with your friends. But this is the thing, because obviously you're in the administration, yeah, right, and. You and I share this affinity because we both were in the Air Force, right? Uh, Aim high. My 25th college reunion is coming up. I know I don't look that old. I'll tell you, boy. I like how you threw that in there, though. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? That's how you threw that in. We all young folks. That's how you threw that in. That's that's the, I can say that. She can't say that. That's from my standpoint from Louisiana. We say black don't crack. That's from Rev. That's keeping it a buck. Um... I, I will say this from the standpoint where you're sitting now, from the administration. You were you could articulate, which is which is right there, the injustice yeah. and who is first and worst. And I mentioned the Air Force thing. Could be a lot of folks who then manipulate. If you're only worried about people of color, you're not worried about other communities. To be the reason why I want to preface this is that we're, that what Honorable Shalanda Baker's articulating is that she is saying that. She is concerned and her energy is concerned about every single American. No American, no matter who you are, Republican or Democrat, should be cooking in America. Right. Full stop, period. This is my thing, though. Many of us in the movement don't feel that urgency. Mm. We don't, we feel like it's a very, like, it's a very bureaucratic, sometimes folk just talking about the problem mm. and in the meantime, there are young folks in particular and folks in the movement who are literally saying, yo, people who look like me, my grandmama, my auntie, my Uncle Louie, are dying mm. in these United States right. because of this crisis. What are y'all going to do about it? Yeah, yeah. That's the question. Mm-hmm. And tell me in those hallways with folks with tons of degrees, and all, how can we get the urgency to know that what is happening here, this madness must stop. Yep. We bring folks to the people. So you, we met early days yes. in my time in yes. the administration. 
And I was naive about government. I mean, even though I had been a military officer, even though I had been a corporate lawyer, I was still pretty naive and I was an academic. So I had a lot of ideas about what justice could look like in the energy system. But when I was dropped in to the system, um, I didn't know anything about the Department of Energy and its levers and tools. It was a research and development entity. We got $100 billion, though, Mm. from taxpayers. Let me just be clear. It's not Congress. It's taxpayers. Congress allocated taxpayer money to us for this energy transition. And so as someone who had come from the solar world, who'd come from wind, I'd written a lot about wind, I'd Mm -hmm. a lot about solar. I was like, oh, great. We have tools for solar and wind. The tools that Congress granted us were tools for industrial-scale projects that would be placed in some of the same communities that we know about, environmental justice communities, communities with environmental justice concerns, in service of the climate disaster, in service of this energy transition. So immediately, my knowledge base had to get retooled for the instruments that I had, for the money that was flowing in, for these industrial-scale projects. So we had to figure out, what does justice look like for a large-scale carbon capture facility? What does it look like? What does justice look like for green hydrogen, for blue hydrogen, for these different facilities that Congress now has said, you must build to avert catastrophic climate change. So I quickly had to ramp up and understand what justice could look like in these industrial-scale projects, battery manufacturing and recycling, critical mineral mining. I had no framework for that. So we had to create it very quickly. And we did it with par- in partnership with folks. So cr- we created that system. I spent my first year and a half or so building the architecture of justice for these things. That- and coming from a standpoint that it was broken down in the previous yes. administration. So and let's just keep it, yes. keep it real. And my office, the Office of Economic Impact and Diversity, yeah. had never been funded to do mm. the work that, Say that Congress. One more time. Say that one more time. My office had never been Come funded to do the work that Congress mm. in 1978 said we had to do. Mm. In 1978, Congress said, we need an office at the Department of Energy that is focused on black and brown people, focused on minority businesses, making sure they avail themselves of all the resources flowing through the Department of Energy. We had never gotten funding to do that, to create a program on that. We have one now. Congress said in 1978, we need a program that is going to make sure minority-serving institutions, I know you're an HBCU grad. Come on now. Right? Howard. Be, the be, MSIs, be, the minority To be specific. Serving. Well, let's not skip that Howard part, to be specific. <laughs> okay. 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 No, go, go, go. Keep, keep yeah, going. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what our producer's there yelling. I told you. It's we have a total breakdown of decorum. It's right? a whole <laughs> breakdown. The third wall comes down. I just I tell love you. It. But my office was designed to make sure the Howards, the Hamptons, you know, all of the minority serving institutions out in the country are availing themselves of DOE money. And the last prong of my office established in 1978 was to make sure we had a research program looking at the effect of the energy system on black and brown communities. So we never had that. So meanwhile, as we're getting all this money through Congress, I'm plopped into an office that has been underfunded and under-resourced and structurally excluded from every policy conversation Mm. in the building Mm. for the last 50 years. And I'm told, (laughs) fix this energy system. Mm. So let me just lay that out. Lay it out. Let me lay that out for the people who are listening, who are like, Shalanda, you may not be doing enough. I don't think I'm getting that at all from community members. But so I'm now looking around the building in this, in a year ago, you're not right? getting that. But people look at you as somebody they can look to. Yes. Okay. So you, are, that's the other part to that. Yes. So no, they look to you like, okay, Let's keep do doing this. what you're doing. Yeah. But they look around that building, and be like, mm, 
or Honorable Baker, we, we, we got to, we got to, you know, come on now. And so what we have done after building the architecture, the policy instruments to make sure black and brown people are winning and getting something out of this transition mm. and low-income communities are getting something, building the Justice 40 framework, all of that, we then said, we're going to take you with us on the road to communities that we know are going to be getting more projects we know have already been distressed the last 30, 50 years due to the energy system. We're going to bring you with us so that when you are back in D.C. designing these programs, giving billions of dollars to corporate entities to build these massive projects, you need to know who you looked at Mm. in those places. So we've been all over the Gulf South. We have been to the Rio Grande Valley through this Energy Justice to the People Roadshow. You can look at our website. We took people from the building, delegations of 20, 30, 40 people, the last trip was in Lake Charles in Port Arthur, Texas. And Port Arthur is near and dear to me. That's right. That's where I grew up. Well, it was where my dad grew up. Yeah. So I have my people there. Mm-hmm. So we went into those communities. We had our colleagues learn the types of things that those communities have experienced for the last decades, for decades. So that as we are designing the programs, I'm no longer the one having to fight. My team is no longer the one having to fight to say, this is what the literature tells us about injustice. This is what we should be doing. Now my own colleagues are saying, this is how I know we need to change our programs because I've seen what's happening on the ground. So that's how we begin to transform it. It has to be hearts and minds, but we're also doing it through technical policy. We're also doing it through the design of the instruments that we're creating to spend this $100 billion. So this, you mentioned, you mentioned a lot. Yep, I did. I went off. No, no, no. And I, we, we like that here at the Coolest <laughs> Show. So I just want to go back to a few things you said. What is Justice 40? Mm. Let's just clarify that yep. for those who are listening. Okay. Justice 40 um, was is the promise, the commitment that we are going to make the goal, mm. setting the goal that 40% of the benefits of all of our climate and clean energy spending across the federal government is going to go to frontline communities, to disadvantaged communities. Justice 40 was created in an executive order that was signed seven days into this administration, Executive Order 14008. So Section 223 of that executive order lays out the Justice 40 initiative, and it calls on the federal family to set the goal. 40% of the benefits of all of our climate and clean energy spending will go to frontline communities. You mentioned Port Arthur, Texas. Yes. Where your family, your father's from. Yeah. I've been there as well. Mm. I'm so glad that you, part of Energy, EPA, and others have been touring. Two things to that. Um, It is clear, this is my words, not yours, that, and it could be yours, but this is my words, just for the record, is that the fossil fuels business plan many times means a death sentence for our communities. With that being said, if you go to Port Arthur, you can see that quite clearly. Mm-hmm. You can see these communities that have been cut off, that have been destroyed, and are choking on dirty air and dirty water, getting cancer, emphysema, asthma. So, but you are, and your ultimate two bosses and at the Hip Hop Caucus, mm-hmm. the coolest show, we are nonpartisan. We're actually mm-hmm. postpartisan. So I'm just asking you this as an American. Right. In, this, in, this, in this process. But your bosses, ultimately, the president and vice president, are rerunning for their jobs, which then means that you also connected to that process. So many people in these communities, time is running out, though. Mm-hmm. So as you're traveling, can you mention the frustration 
Mm-hmm. They're saying, hey, Honorable Shalonda Baker, we see you. EP Administrator Mike Regan, we see you. Secretary Energy, Secretary HUD, we see all y'all. But if y'all don't get back in office, which is what it may be, does that mean that our chance of life expectancy stops with y'all? Do y'all understand the time is, the clock is ticking not only on the climate, but also maybe on what y'all can do? Do y'all feel, and that's, and that's what I feel that they're constantly, it just feels like, yes, you see the problem, but do you, it, what's the urgency? Yeah. Let me let me tell you about the yeah. urgency. A um, couple things. And also the federal investments are behind the urgency. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I will start with the personal anecdote because you Please. did mention, I mentioned my family roots and then you mentioned it again. And I got to Port Arthur um, before the team arrived a day before. Um, and I, I got to have breakfast with my uncle. Mm. And the last time I had been in Port Arthur was when we were burying my father. Mm. And we buried him in 2008. And so I said, take me to the grave. Mm. And so we went to the the cemetery uh, where where my father was buried. And, you know, my uncle, who was the baby, he was cleaning the, or he was actually the middle child. He was cleaning the the gravestone and he was just like pulling the weeds away. And I looked at the, the age and, my dad died at 52. And then we went right around the corner was my, my grandmother. That's where I'm at now. What's, what's that? That's where I'm at now. So look, look at your... So every this is, every so day. This is, this is where your dad would have been. Every day I live, I'm like, I, I outlive my... I mean, I didn't outlive him yet, but the next person that we looked at was my grandmother. She died at 34. Same community. Port Arthur, Texas. Petrochemical. In the heart of the fossil fuel industry. Two gravestones down was my, my uncle, 38. So for me, the urgency, my brother, every day gets up at 4.30 to take a bus to go to the Sabine Pass to build a, a, a gas pipeline. So he's in an industry that has effectively killed my family. Mm. So for me, the urgency and the paradox, oh, right? It's there, it's present for me. And so in our trip to Port Arthur, you know, it was it was historic. It was great. I got a key to the city. I mean, none of that is anything I could have imagined, or my grand, my grandmother, my my dad could have imagined, right? That I would be in this role at convening. We had around fifty people mm-hmm. from the Department of Energy, from philanthropy in Port Arthur, small little town that has been gutted by this industry in Port Arthur. And I said, the secretary was like, everywhere she goes, she wants to do something. So her heart is real. I would not work for anyone um, who who wasn't authentic and had the urgency that I have around justice. She's like, Shalana, what are we going to do? And I said, ma'am, let's, let's put together a task force. Let's put together a tiger team. And so in Port Arthur, she announced that I would lead a tiger team across government and within the Department of Energy to figure out how we're going to make some strides in this administration. Mm. Now, we know we're talking about 400 years right, of injustice and structural inequality that we're trying to dismantle in this administration through race, racial equity, social equity, justice. We're trying to do that work in this administration. We're not going to do it. We can't do it all in, in four years. So we absolutely, um, you know, need to continue the work. But I know what I can do. I can try 
to get some real commitments from folks on workforce. When you go, so I, I went to Port Arthur when I was in third grade. It was thriving in many ways. Yes, people were struggling. There were low-income folks. There was a railroad track that cut straight through town, dividing east and west side. But there were shops and you know black-owned businesses. When I went back a few months ago, it was completely gutted. Houses raised because people left. Different plots that are vacant. Ghost, it was a ghost town. If you think about what that community should look like, given the wealth that has been created in that, from that community, it should look like Dubai. Mm. The streets should be paved in gold. So my role now is to try to figure out how to create some justice for folks jobs, right? I mean, yes, I know it's complicated and there is that paradox there, but we're bringing more resources most likely into places like Port Arthur, into the Gulf South. So how are we forcing industry? How are we moving industry to do things differently? That's that's the work I'm doing and that's the urgency that we do face in our building. So two things. Hmm. Um, one, if you need to take a break, you can. Oh, okay. If you feel that, if you feel that, because... I can see that you have tears in your eyes. Mm. And and um, so where is, where is that coming from? Is it just mm. from recounting about almost, to be frank, the genocide mm. on your people? Mm-hmm. Or is it just the destruction of just a community here in America? Oh, man. There's so many reasons, you know, for the for the emotion and the tears. I think thinking about the generational pieces, my grandmother, my 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 father, my brother now, right, in the industry, thinking about the largeness and the enormity of the problem that we face. I mean, that it's it's big. And thinking about my role, I mean, it's interesting because when I travel internationally. Um, the bigness of my role is apparent mm-hmm. <laughs> to people who are meeting me. They're like, oh my gosh, you're in charge of making sure the U.S. energy system is equitable and just. I'm like, yeah. I mean, but on a day-to-day, you know, it's it's boxing gloves. It's like, okay, what am I, what's the battle that I'm trying to fight? And yes, I'm a strategic thinker. I'm thinking big picture. But like when I start to break down the telling of like the industry and the, the, the harms that have um, been created in communities over time, the weight of my role is so apparent to me. And I, I can't... How do you handle that weight? Mm. I know it's not all me. Mm. There is... It's, it's not meaning I'm not the only one who's even here in front of you. Mm. I am here with generations of people who created a space for me to be here. Mm. So the people that you've talked to on your show, the Dr. Wrights, the Dr. Bullards, those are the people who created the space for me to be here. So when I speak in any setting, I'm bringing legions of people with me into Come this Come on space. now. Come on now. Um, and I also know that somebody fought, somebody stayed alive in those reeds in Louisiana and Texas mm. so that I could be here. So when I, when I do feel the emotion, I'm almost channeling the emotion from that 200 years, 400 years of history with me and knowing that I have a big role, 
but I'm not going to finish the work. Somebody behind me is going to finish that mm. work, you know, um, and I'm never alone in it. Let's speak to, how you doing? You okay? Yes. Okay. Good, okay. Good, good. I love it. Let's Well, we just had a whole segment on camera repair. So shout out to those who want to go back and listen to that. We had a, yes, a whole segment. Uh, one of our producers tomorrow has a institute called Critical Earth. Ooh. It was with can repair, particularly yes. a woman of color in the movement. Yes. So it's a little shout out, a little plug there for those who might have missed that. So I, I just, and yeah. because of that, I know that our producers now with Cross and Destiny, they like making sure that I am mindful because we have some heavy conversations here mm-hmm. on the coolest show. Um, petrochemicals, you mentioned that. Mm-hmm. What's DOE's stance on that? How do we stop the expansion of? What's the process? Yeah. yeah. So we don't have an official stance petrochemicals. I mean, fossil fuels are also a part of that. Our stance vis-a-vis fossil fuels is that we need an energy transition and we're working urgently to make sure that's true and real. Um, And, you know, I think that's kind of the extent of what I'll say about that. The administration's position is we are making this transition. That's a side note for us in the movement. We got to push harder. That's Mm -hmm. that's us to, to grind hard. Speaking of the movement, what are community benefit plans? Yes. And why do they matter to environmental mm-hmm. justice communities? And can you give us some examples? Yeah. So um, I don't want to get too nerdy and wonky. Please do. Okay, okay. okay good. Please do. Yeah. Uh, all day. So I mentioned that, you know, the first year or so of my time at DOE was really about building the architecture of Justice 40, mm-hmm. right? The policy framework. What are the, what should we be focused on as an agency with Justice 40? We had eight. So, and we have eight. So first, want to reduce energy burden. We know that's a crisis. Mm-hmm. Now people are burning in their homes, right? Like they're frying because they're so hot mm-hmm. or freezing because they're so cold. So energy burden is one of the root causes of that, reducing the cost of energy in the home. Mm-hmm. The second is reduce, re- reducing exposure to environmental hazards and harms. We know that that's something that's pervasive. We know that that has to be something we're focused on in all of these industrial scale projects. We have to reduce the impact of exposure to and reduce the exposure to environmental hazards and harms. We also know that access to capital is a problem, that folks are not getting solar. They're not getting, um, you know, uh, EVs because they don't have capital for that. So our programs are designed to make sure we're releasing, we're removing barriers to that. We also have a huge multi-billion dollar loan program that is being rewired every day to make sure folks um, who've been excluded have access to that capital. We're also focused on parity and solar adoption and EV adoption and all the new technologies, making sure that parity in the adoption rate is, is there and on the table as our new programs are going out. We also are making sure that, so the fifth priority is about businesses and making sure we're creating new businesses in this new energy transition. We're creating new jobs. We're focused on energy democracy and we're focused on resilience. So those are our eight policy priorities. So they're baked into our framework, our approach to the Department of Energy to Justice 40. So I created that. I was happy with myself. We had a map. We had all these things. And then the question was, what is the vehicle, the policy vehicles that's actually going to move that? So our instrument, our biggest policy tool is these funding opportunity announcements at the um, Department of Energy. These funding opportunities, or FOAs as we call them, Mm -hmm. are the documents that go out the door that signal to industry that it's time to apply and signal to universities it's time to apply for Department of Energy funds. Almost every um, technology that's going to go into the ground that's funded by the Department of Energy will be as a result of a funding opportunity. So we then said, okay, we've got to rewire those. Mm. We've got to 
make that our policy guide for industry as they're applying for these awards and other parties. So we came up with the community benefits plan framework and the community benefits plan framework is where we're now housing all of our justice 40 priorities along with other equity priorities and priorities on jobs. Mm. So typically before this administration and before we created this framework, you'd be a, 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 let's see, a Dow chemical or some major corporation, get a funding opportunity, apply for it. All you had to do was show your, your technology. Great. You would get the money. Now, 20% of your application has to be is scored based on your community benefits plan. So community benefits plans relate to stakeholder engagement. So you have to have a plan for that. You develop the plan, you submit it to us in your application. You also have to have, to have a plan for Justice 40. All those eight policy priorities that I just laid out, they now have to describe how they're going to do those things in communities by census tract. So it's very specific. They also have to have a plan, a plan for quality jobs and they have to have a plan for how they're going to solidify these things. So community um, agreements, for example, so and, and diversity, equity, inclusion and accessibility. So when, when I say DEIA, I'm meaning um, contracting with small disadvantaged businesses, mm-hmm. contracting with veteran owned businesses, contracting with um, minority businesses as well. They have to have a plan. And how are they gonna, also going to hire a diverse workforce? So when that dropped, it was mind-blowing for industry because they had never been asked to show how they were going to engage communities. Not only had they never been asked, but they'd never been scored on it. Mm. So in my mind, it's pretty transformative. And this is something that is now having shockwaves across the industry and across the field that's applying for DOE money. The White House is looking at it. We also have other colleagues across the federal family that are looking at what we've done because we've made it concrete now. So we're in year three now, moving into year three. Now it's about implementation. So a lot of these awards are coming out. People have been applying, entities have been applying. And so the question is, how do we make your plan? How do we take that plan that you wrote and make it real? Mm. Actually create the jobs you said you were going to create. Actually partner with businesses and companies that you said you were going to partner with and the HBCUs and the MSIs that you were going to partner with. How do we make that real? How, how are we actually measuring your reduction in pollution, your reduction um, in energy burden at the household level? So we took the policy tools that we had. And these were the, the strongest ones. And we baked in that community benefits plan. Wow. So I just have three more questions. Okay. Rapid fire. So oh, first, rapid fire. Well, the first one is the first one is just really for you. Okay. So the first one is what do you what is it in this conversation that might have been missed, but you particularly want the movement to know? Yeah. And I say movement slash American, so people just to be clear, I don't want anybody to to take any of that to mean anything that that's but what do you need Americans to know? right now about what you're working on and what needs to be done in this moment. Yeah. This is your moment. This, mm. this is your, this is your, this is your, what do you call it? Soapbox. Oh man. I think what I need them to know is that they can't rest mm. and that everything that I have created with the team is a product of negotiation and know that I came in high. <laughs> know that I came in hard. But everything that we have is, is negotiated so they can't rest in pushing for even more. Mm. 
pushing for what they think is required to make this energy transition just. I've listened and done my best to make sure what we were doing now reflects the hopes and dreams of the community and the movement. But the rest, like they shouldn't rest. The next generation should not rest. Mm. I think the other thing is, I had coffee with one of my dear friends this morning and we were talking about what is needed today uh, in the movement. And he created this frame for me that I started calling the 2100 Project. Mm. What is the world that we're going to be living in in 2100? And what should we be doing now in terms of the systems and the processes that we create that make that world more just? That's right. Because we know that the 2100 world is not going to be this world in terms of climate. We're doing everything we can to make sure it's not a devastated world. But we still need to be creating the systems that prepare us for a world that is disrupted by climate change. Mm. So that's my personal should, like no, that's not, soap, not the honorable. <laughs> no, no, no. That's it. That that is the soapbox in that process. Okay. So, uh, last two questions, pretty easy. Okay. Um, just one: How can people find you? LinkedIn, you, LinkedIn, and how can they get? If they want to get with some of these programs with DOE, yeah. how can they do that? Look us up, um, Department of Energy, um, forward slash diversity. Awesome. Last question. Yeah. This is a, this is the hardest question, actually. It's a hard one here. You ready? I'm ready. You sure you're ready for this question? I don't know. Scare oh, no. me now. Oh no, you're scared. <laughs> All right, here it comes. Ready? I heard you got tickets. You're going to the Howard Hampton game. Oh, okay. Who's gonna win that game? <laughs> and who's the real HU? And and who? What was the last question? And who is the real HU? <laughs> We'll, we'll have to say that for my third time on the show. Oh, right? my goodness. She's learned. <laughs> three-peat. She's three definitely peat. learned the politics here in Washington, <laughs> D.C. Honorable Shalonda Baker, thank you so much. Thank you. And definitely welcome you back for the three-peat. Mm, all right. And bless you thank for you. all you do for our people. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening. And I am your host of the coolest show, Rev You. Thank you. Thank you, Rev. Great to see you. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Follow us at Think 100 Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to repeat. It's the coolest show you know. It's the coolest show you know.